it's important to recognize historically where gatekeeping comes from. 50, 80, 100 years ago, women had no political power and no professional power. The only power a woman could find is inside her household, right? And so over time, if you still don't have power outside the home and you relinquish your power inside the home, where do you have any power left or authority? Zero. So we have to recognize where maternal gatekeeping comes from. And I think it's also important to recognize that you don't have to have kids to be a maternal gatekeeper. You can certainly do it with a partner without any kids in the home. You call that cleaning? Come on. Give me the vacuum. I'll take care of it. This is Meredith For Real, the curious introvert, and I'm Meredith. Here, we explore the nuanced, less obvious, and paradoxical aspects of society— Questions that need nuanced answers, not just Google results. These are the conversations you thought you'd never get to have. And the goal? To inspire curiosity over judgment. Each episode is different, so bring your ADD and your earbuds and have a look around. This week explores a topic that a lot of people relate to but don't know how to solve. One of those big picture societal problems that we hope the mysterious they will fix But the taboo part is it actually does start with us. We're talking about gender roles in our romantic partnerships, how we actually build our own cages, perpetuate the very behavior that frustrates us, and live with resentment as our relationship shifts from less of a romantic partnership to more of a parental one. My guest shares why this isn't just a conversation for women and girls, tackles society versus biology, that one was a big one, and even helps with what to say to your partner to open up communication. That one's at the end, so be sure to stick around. And if you end up liking this episode, you'll also like the one I did asking the question, could your attachment style be ruining your relationship? It's episode 180. And lastly, if you enjoyed a couple episodes of the show, it would be so awesome if you could tap the stars on the Apple Podcast app. I know that leaving A full review feels like another item on your already very long to-do list. So don't worry. You can just tap those stars at a stoplight and it would help a ton. All right, friends, keep it curious. Ah, young love. Twitter-pated lovers gaze into each other's eyes as they gush affection for one another and make plans for the future. It's the stuff every good movie is made of. But what about when the romance movie becomes more like... A family sitcom. You know, the kind with the overworked mom being the parent of everyone in the house, and the depressed dad always looking for an escape. Nothing he does is ever the way she does it. He's not allowed to participate in parenthood, and she's off sneaky spending his paycheck away. Or maybe it's she always seems to be working an unpaid second shift, has to remind him of everything, and he never seems to notice the dishes or laundry. These scenarios might be close to home for you, or maybe you know someone. My next guest holds a PhD in human rights and social development. She's the author of the book, Equal Partners, Improving Gender Equality at Home. Today, she's going to discuss why default gender roles are restrictive for everyone and explore the question, how does the romantic dynamic turn into a parental one and can it be reversed? Writer, speaker, gender expert, Dr. Kate Mangino. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I totally thought that your book would be like an angry feminist book, (laughs) but it absolutely wasn't. 
and I loved it. But I have to tell you, I went to a podcast conference and was at a hotel in a hot tub by myself, but there were other people in the hot tub, male people. And I was reading the book like this, you know, to keep it out of the water. And I wasn't bothered by a single person in the hot tub. Imagine that. Yeah, that doesn't totally surprise me. I love angry feminist books, but this is not one of them. I agree. Yeah. That's not my natural voice. That's not what came out when I started writing. Well, and I I kind of was afraid that this would be a book that was kind of a preaching to the choir, rallying the troops kind of a book, because I think every article that I've read in this vein has had that tone, almost as if the author has forgotten the goal of writing this sorts of things. But you really did a great job of trying to keep everyone at the table and invite them into the conversation by painting the picture of the benefits of gender equality to everyone. And that's, I think, what I appreciated about it the most. Thank you. I really, I appreciate you saying that. It was a conscious decision. There's a lack of patience, I think, out there with some of the conversations around gender. And I understand where that comes from. And I understand where the frustration comes from. And I can certainly empathize with that. But if we truly want to grow the choir, if we want to talk to new people, different people, broaden the conversation, change the conversation, we have to meet people where they are. We have to be comfortable with having the dialogue you know, start the dialogue where people are comfortable starting it. And for that reason, I tried to make the book have the perspective that any reader is welcome. This isn't just for one kind of reader. Well, I love that you said where we start the dialogue, because I would like to start the dialogue with kind of where people maybe veer off path. So how do you think people are misunderstanding gender equality? The number one misunderstanding, I think, is people assuming that gender equality is all about women and girls and that it's a conversation for women and girls and it's for those people over there. That if I'm a man or a boy or um, or a non-binary person, that I'm not part of that conversation. Gender equality is really for everyone. Gender inequality is bad for everyone. And I think gender equality is good for everyone. And when you approach things from sort of looking at a situation Like, you know, what's the gender dynamic here? And who doesn't have access to resources because of their gender identity? Then you get into a real conversation and you start to realize how gender inequality can hurt everyone. Can I give you a quick example from my work that just has come up in the last week? So for one of the nonprofits that I work for, I'm working on a project with several countries in Africa around gender and agriculture, right? And it revolves around a school feeding program. Mauritania is one of our case studies. And in Mauritania, girls are dropping out of school between the ages of 10 and 12, and very few are making it to graduation. When you dig into the data, you realize they're dropping out when they get their period because they don't have any menstrual supplies. And so they can't keep going to school when they're on their period. And they're getting married off to older men for that dowry because their parents need money. So it's an economic situation. Okay, so in that situation, girls don't have the access to education that boys have because of gender identity. However, when you look at Mozambique, the dropout rates are very high amongst boys between ages of 10 and 12, and most girls are making it to graduate from high school. And it's because in that area of Mozambique, the cattle industry 
is what drives most economic progress. And they're pulling all the boys out of school to work on the ranch and help their dads and their uncles. So boys are being restricted from education because of their gender identity. So that's what I'm talking about is that it's not about something that's just for women and girls or something that's just for men and boys or something that's just for people who are non-binary. It's looking at where you see restrictions because of your gender. I was surprised by the immediate inclusion of the concept of cognitive labor in your book. As soon as I read that phrase, because I don't think I'd even heard it before, I knew what it was. I was like, yep, I know all about some cognitive labor. I know what that is. Yeah. And then spent the weekend with my parents and you know, I've been so excited about your book. I'm like telling everyone about it. And I mentioned this conversation, said the word cognitive labor. You should have seen her eyes light up. She knew immediately what that meant. But I'm afraid that there's the possibility some might not understand what that is. And so I'm hoping that you have a really lovely way of describing it so that it kind of hits home with everyone who maybe it's not immediately lighting a light bulb for. I think people who have done cognitive labor immediately know exactly what it is and how time-consuming it is. And people who haven't are confused because it is invisible work. And so if you don't do it, you might not see it happening around you. Cognitive labor is a term that was coined by um, Dr. Allison Daminger, who's at the University of Wisconsin. A lot of people use the term emotional labor or second shift or third shift. I'm not crazy about the concept of emotional labor because the word emotional is coded for women and it oftentimes has a negative connotation. Cognitive labor is exactly what it is. And I relate it to project management work. If anyone has ever done project management in their professional life, it's that constant plate spinning, right? Where are all of my projects? What's going on? Are there any fires that need to be put out? I'm looking ahead to figure out what needs to happen so that I can avoid disasters tomorrow and next week and next month. I'm constantly researching and looking for other options. I'm constantly evaluating what I have. I'm constantly putting out those fires and changing paths and and looking forward of what's coming up. And that happens in a workplace. It happens professionally. People are paid a lot of money who do it well. But it happens in every household, whether you have two people in the house, you have 10 people in the house. It's Do we have food in the refrigerator for dinner tomorrow? There's a teacher work day next week. Do we have coverage for the kids because they're not going to school? Let's see. Next month, we are going to adopt that puppy. And so who is going to be around? Who's going to be able to walk that puppy three days a week? It's constantly thinking about all the little things that need doing in your house and figuring out who's going to do it. And it is exhausting and it is never ending. And it doesn't end at five o'clock on a Friday. It happens during weekends and days off. It intensifies of holidays. It follows you on vacations. Cognitive labor is always present. Yes. Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned holidays because we're coming up to the holidays and the what will we buy for your dad? What will we buy for my brother? Like that is part of cognitive labor. And I may add to this. Tell me if I'm wrong. I was once told that women are the emotional impact takers for their families. And it was kind of presented as a fact. And I don't know if it's true for everyone, but if it's true for someone, I think it would be part of that cognitive labor because it's like, oh man, I got the bad news. 
So I have to absorb it, take the shock by myself, and then think of four solutions, potentially like options, and then present it to the rest of the family. And that was what it was meant when it said, when this person said women are the emotional impact takers for the family. So does that fall into the bucket of cognitive labor, would you say? Yeah, it absolutely could be. I think that traditionally women are co- are the cognitive laborers or the impact takers of the family. It's not because there's anything biological that separates men from women in terms of what we can do or can't do intellectually. It's the way we're socialized. It's the way we socialize girls. It isn't for every family. And when I wrote about cognitive labor and I said, this is typically a female role, but anyone can take on, it's a behavior. So anyone can take on this behavior. I've heard from a lot of men who they have a switched role in their household and their female partner is the breadwinner and the emotionally distant one. And the man is the the caretaker of the family and the cognitive labor. I've heard from a lot of same-sex and queer couples that they still have one person who handles the cognitive labor and one person who doesn't. So I think it is important to know that, yes, traditionally more women than men take on that behavior pattern, but it always isn't always that way. And once you sort of remove it and think of it as a behavior, I think it's easier to find a, a shift or a change. And a possibility also, I would add, because yeah. like I am usually the vacation trip planner, to use a personal okay. example, and I have in the past enjoyed all these details. But this past trip, I was um, occupied with the details of wrapping up the last trip, and they were they were back to back. And uh, my husband said, "Oh, I didn't I didn't know that you needed me to plan it. I'll do it." And then, I mean, he works in engineering. He's incredibly detailed <laughs> and, and clean. I might add, like I am the slob compared to him. And it was a great trip. And I just never thought to ask him, like, "Hey, maybe one one time you could plan a trip." And so it's interesting as we kind of, you know, explore this idea of parenting each other in romantic partnerships, the pressure and that we put on ourselves, the cages that we build for ourselves within it. In your uh, research for this book, and maybe just in your gender study work, broadly speaking, how have you observed that romantic relationships kind of tip over into these more parental or maybe even like employee-employer type? It happens more often than I think people care to admit. It's interesting when I started the research, which now the book's been out for over a year. So I started my research four years ago at this point, and I started to talk to different people and all kinds of people were really quick to defend their relationships. I had many people of all genders say, oh, my partner's great. Right. We're we're very we're very close to equal because no one wants to, I think, admit to a stranger that perhaps they (laughs) have lapsed into traditional patterns. But then when you start to talk about it, I had many people say to me flat out, you know, oh, we have kind of an equal divide, but my wife is more the manager and I'm sort of the employee and I do whatever she tells me to do. Well, that in itself does not not suggest you have an equal partnership. It's the difference between having two like co-CEOs and a CEO on some sort of middle level manager or or like a store manager and sort of that shopkeeper who just clocks in for eight hours when they have a shift. And I think that it's perfectly relatable to sort of a parent 
child role as well, where one person is doing all the management, all the decision making, all the cognitive labor. And then it's, can you please unload the dishwasher? Can you take out the trash? Can you, right, fill in the blank? That suggests that there's one person who's doing all the cognitive labor and one person who isn't. And that cognitive labor over time is very time consuming and very sort of capacity consuming in terms of it limits what you can do in other areas of your life, right? So if you are not doing all the cognitive labor in your home, you might have time for friends. You might have time to go back to school. You might have time to take on overtime shifts to make extra money. You could sleep more. You could have a hobby. First, people who are doing all that cognitive labor, that takes up such a tremendous amount of energy and time. You don't have the opportunity for all those other areas in your life to explore. So there's just no way you can have an equal partnership when one person's doing all the cognitive labor and one person is. But how do, how do couples even get there? Because they definitely don't date like that. They don't date where one person is reminding the other person, did you take your vitamins? Like that's definitely not happening in the courtship process. <laughs> what is it about these long-term relationships that tend to morph into this more parental style? It's such a good question. I think it really comes down to gender norms. We think in the United States we're beyond gender norms, that we've graduated, that we have a gender equal society. We haven't. We have a ton of gender norms. We have this norm that women are better at caregiving. We have this norm that at the end of the day, men need to be the breadwinners to be a successful husband and father. We have a lot of sort of traditional norms that still underpin a lot of subconscious behavior and decisions. We have plenty of data that show that looking at baby boomer to Gen X to millennial, we haven't seen much change. Actually, older Gen X, we saw the biggest change in the 1980s. In 1965, chore journals had men doing only about 15% of household labor and women doing about 85%. When you think back to the 60s, that's about right. By 1985, that was closer to about a 33-77 split. So men doubled their household labor between 65 and 85. Since 1985 all the way to 2023, we've only seen it change to from 33 to 35. So we've just seen two little percentage points tick up, which means that millennials didn't really make any changes. And from the preliminary data that we have with the Gen Z <laughs> generation that's growing up and partnering now, they're also falling back into these traditional patterns. They're more gender aware than past generations. They're more accepting of gender fluidity. There are many Gen Z are totally fine with people changing pronouns. But when they partner up, whether or not they're with someone of an opposite and different gender or if it's the same sex or queer couple, you still find this falling back into more traditional roles. So I think part of that is gender norms. And I think part of that is structural as well. That's why it's the hardest to remain, remain equal when you have kids, because the structure around raising children in our country still assumes prefers to have one parent at home who's that flex parent who can pick up from school at three o'clock and take Friday off and take summers off and be there for holidays and do the doctor's visits and be available to volunteer at school and have one breadwinner. And so I just think because our structures 
were created during a time when we had one parent at home and one parent at work, that sort of is now perpetuating and informing our actual behaviors. Isn't that interesting? That was a mouthful. I'm sorry about no, that. No, that was so well <laughs> said because it it accurately depicts what we think we are and what our actions say that we are. And I have so many thoughts about so many things that you said, but let me start with one maybe opposing view to something you said about society versus biology because I remember hearing a hormone expert on the Jordan Harbinger show who was talking about the impacts on behavior and perception of reality through changes in hormones. And she was talking about hormones in general, the general way, but she also brought up observations through the trans community, people who were taking testosterone blockers and increasing their estrogen levels. They reported that they had more empathy for the world around them, that they suddenly noticed the beauty of the things around them that they were more affectionate and complimentary verbally and maybe even like more touchy-feely, their words, and and that people who took elevated levels of testosterone felt more risk-taking, had more views of like ambition and go get That's not a word, but I think you're falling. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying. So my question is, with with knowing that's kind of where I'm coming from, is it possible that there are genetic or perhaps epigenetic influencers in gender roles at least a little bit and that it's not all societal based? Of course, there is always going to be some sort of a biological influence, obviously. I think the debate is sort of where that cuts off. Yeah. Is it 50-50? Is it 75-25? Where is it? Personally, I think it's 95 or more social. And I think it's very small in the biology category. And that can, that will be debated by scientists, I'm sure, for many years to come. Jamil Zaki, he wrote a book on empathy. And I remember him saying that he thinks his work, and he's a behavioral psychologist, I believe, wrote that everyone is born with this sort of like predetermined range of empathy that, that you can produce. Or that you can react to. But, by, but empathy is a skill like anything else. And by cognitively and intentionally practicing empathy, you can work to get within that higher range. Um, so I still think a lot of this is skill-based. Caregiving is a skill. Empathy is a skill. With practice, you get better. And I think humans constantly push themselves in all kinds of different ways to get better at whatever they value. So I think if you value nurturing, caregiving, empathy, whoever you are, I think you can achieve that. Did that answer your question? It did. A little bit? It did. That, no, that's a really good point. I never thought of it as a skill. <laughs> that's kind of cool, though. I think yeah. in, in terms of like gender-coded behavior, there's a lot of things that just get a pass. Brendan Murata, he's a filmmaker. He did the film American Circumcision. He calls things that get a pass cultural hypnosis. And I think that accurately describes some of the stuff we're talking about, like the example I gave in the beginning of me, for some reason, thinking that my husband was not capable of planning a complicated trip. Like we stayed in multiple locations. There was camping and permits and surf checks and mountain gear. And it, it was a right. lot. Your husband, the engineer with presumably advanced degrees. 
Well, he he's not an engineer, but he works in engineering okay. and okay. he thinks okay. very much like an engineer. How one pictures an engineer, he yep. very much has that fantastic way of uncomplicating processes and he's completely capable. But somewhere along the way, I had a hypnosis response to his ability to do that. And and so that kind of leads me to that at another part of going back to what you said, which was about caregiving, like male-female roles, because I know some men who are the primary caregivers for their child or their children, and I, I feel like they have come against some stereotypes, and, and we haven't talked openly mm-hmm. about it, the people that I'm, I have in mind specifically, but I can feel it somehow, that mm-hmm. I can feel the the awkward silence in the room when they're like, yeah, you know, I only work three days a week because my kid is really involved in the sport and I'm helping them train and my other kid is doing X, Y, Z. And then you can kind of just hear people's heads tilt as they scratch their chins going, huh, that's really interesting. So because this is such a topic that we traditionally think of female, you know, women's rights when we think equal rights in modern society in North America, how have you seen lack of gender equality negatively impact men? The stereotypical sort of men's role, right? You are masculine if. You are a good partner, husband, father if. They tend to be in this breadwinner role. They tend to provide for their family in a financial way and provide some sort of safety and structure to their family's household. Would you agree? Does that sound? Yes, absolutely. Like Does that kind of make sense with sort of the... Yeah, like if we were doing eulogies, it'd be like, he was a good man. Right. He provided for his family, and he right. didn't cheat on his wife publicly. Yeah, yes. that'd be... <laughs> right, that'd be right. It. So you're faithful, you're dependable, you protect and provide. Yeah. And I think that our definition of protect and provide has been pretty narrow forever. And I think right now we're starting to open up that definition. So for my book, I interviewed 40 men who already live as equal partners. They live all over the U.S. and Canada. They have varied identities. It's a pretty diverse group. And one thing that they made very clear to me is that they have redefined providing for their family. One man is married to a female physician and said, my wife makes a ton of money and she works a ton of hours and she provides for our family financially. I've got two little kids. We don't need any more money. We are doing just fine. My kids need me to be there when they come home from school. They need a parent to make a good dinner every night and check their homework. And my wife sometimes is stuck at the hospital until after they go to bed. So what I needed to do to provide for my family was to be present. Does he get pushback from his friends and family? Absolutely. He's had eye rolls. He's had to kind of stand his ground and explain where he's coming from over and over. I've interviewed men that have let those social pressures change their decision. I had another man I interviewed who decided to be a stay-at-home for a period of time. Again, his wife was making enough money. The kids, he had like two kids under three. I mean, it's a lot. So he left his job. And he said, you know, when his when his sister-in-law quit her job to stay home and be a stay-at-home mom, the whole family rallied around her. You're doing such a great job. We're so proud of you. We, we are behind you. And he said a few years later when he did it, the same family was like, are you lazy? Do you just want to hang out more in your wood shop? Why aren't you providing for your family? So 
same exact situation, just two different expectations for a mom and for a dad. So that's one way that men suffer is that they are pigeonholed into this one narrow lane. We're still in that spot right now where it's hard to do something different. I hope in 10 or 20 years, it won't be as hard. I hope so too. Um, And I want to talk about maternal gatekeeping. This was a term Mm -hmm. I had not heard until I was reading your book, but one that I immediately understood once I heard examples. It was similar to what I mentioned in the intro where the mother or the females in charge of the house, they don't allow the men in the house to even participate. And that, I think, is a type of parental vibe within a household, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's like Mm -hmm. you don't let a child run the grill like a toddler. It's not not appropriate for them to run the coal grill. (laughs) So it's kind of like slapping their hand away. I was shocked by the example that you gave by a woman you call Lydia in the book who said that maternal gatekeeping is about maintaining power and tearing down your husband every time he does something wrong reinforces your position. My jaw was on the floor. If this is happening in a house, I'm sure it's obvious to all in the house. How do you recover from that? How do you go from your your partner is gatekeeping and you're just over here walking on eggshells trying to stay in your lane and now it's become this icy transactional thing? How do you go from that to like, oh, we're dating again? Is it even Everything's possible? Everything's fine. Yeah. So I just want to say, whenever I talk about maternal gatekeeping, I always start with a caveat. I'm not blaming women for gender inequality. And I think sometimes when you talk about maternal gatekeeping, not you, when one talks about maternal gatekeeping, it's a slippery slope because it can quickly sound like I am shaming women into perpetuating gender equality because they're power hungry in the household. That is not at all what I'm saying. And I also think it's important to recognize historically where gatekeeping comes from. 50, 80, 100 years ago, women had no political power and no professional power. The only power a woman could find is inside her household, right? And so over time, if you still don't have power outside the home and you relinquish your power inside the home, where do you have any power left or authority? Zero. So we have to recognize where maternal gatekeeping comes from. And I think it's also important to recognize that you don't have to have kids to be a maternal gatekeeper. You can certainly do it with a partner without any kids in the home. You call that cleaning? Come on. Give me the vacuum. I'll take care of it. It can rear its ugly head in lots of different places. And I also think that there's a motive socially. There's like this weird pressure to bond with other women by bitching about your husband the whole men am i right Mm, boys will be boys how is that helpful i i don't care for that i think it's demeaning but i think it adds to the pressure to be a parent role figure in your relationship and it certainly reinforces the idea of maternal gatekeeping absolutely it's like a confirmation circle of like it it is it's just yeah i don't like those either To answer your question about where do you go from here, you know, I think that whenever you have an epiphany about anything, you just talk about it, you know, like, hey, honey, I read a book. I listened to a (laughs) podcast. I read an article. I'm not proud of it, 
but I think I do this. And it wasn't until I learned this word and I read about it that I understand that I'm doing it. And I realize I'm doing it by accident because that was what was role modeled to me growing up. And so I just kind of perpetuate it without thinking about it. But I don't I don't like this about our behavior. I realize the negative things that are coming out of this. How do you feel? Do you recognize it? Does this make you feel small? What can we do together to change things in the future? I know that's an awkward conversation for a lot of people to have, but I think that just saying it out loud, apologizing, being honest about maybe mistakes that you made, and then talking about together Instead of me setting a vision of what the house looks like, let's come together and set a vision of what our house should look like or what our approach to parenting is. Let's have a shared vision moving forward as opposed to me setting all of the rules. I like that, the shared vision. When I was prepping for our conversation, I was trying to talk to as many people as I could. And I kind of wonder if I came up with the same obstacle that you shared in the beginning about at first, it was hard to get people to be honest. Everything is fine, you know, sort of thing. But thankfully, I had a few people that were, I felt like were really forthcoming and had the self-awareness mm-hmm. to share in an honest way. And I'm so grateful for that. One of the things that came up was that one woman felt like she has a hard time valuing her labor in the home. And it's cognitive labor, but it's also the physical labor. It was funny because she said, well, we're 50-50, but I do everything at the house. I was like, that's not so too hurt but okay. But she was saying that she was working with her therapist to to learn how to value what she's doing at the home because her husband Mm -hmm. and therapist are trying to say, look, keeping a human alive, aka your offspring, and keeping the home clean and organized and taking care of all of this while I'm the primary wage earner, is very valuable. But that made me realize how many other people struggle with that. Hey, Curiositors, just a quick pause to show gratitude to our sponsors and give you some special deals. It's that time of year for front porch pumpkins and football barbecues. But here in the southern U.S., mosquitoes can still be an unwanted part of the equation. I've been using Insects Mosquito Service since 2019, and I love that they guarantee their work. And pollinators are always top of mind. Don't wait to get on their schedule. If you're in the Florida Panhandle or the Gulf Coast of Alabama, give Insect a call, E-N-S-E-C dot net. This time of year is my favorite time to travel, but just because the weather is cooler doesn't mean the need for hydration is not a thing. My husband and I have been using Liquid IV since 2019, and we love it as our airplane travel companion. We don't have to pack extra bulky drinks and certainly don't have to pay extra at the airport for them. Instead, we just bring a little packet that we can easily put in a water bottle, and it has three times the electrolytes of traditional sports drinks. I recommend the strawberry lemonade flavor. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code CURIOUS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code CURIOUS at liquidiv.com. Don't pick another boring venue for your next work event. Check out one of the Pensacola Historic Trust 12 museums. If you watch the show on YouTube, you see the beautiful backdrop of Trader John's, the exhibit where I record the show inside the Pensacola Museum of History. Booking an event with the Trust will not just be memorable for your guests, it will support the efforts to keep Pensacola's historic charm preserved. 
And if you're planning a trip here and need an indoor activity option, pick up a ticket in person so you can show the agent one of my emails and get $2 off an adult ticket. Learn more at historicpensacola.org. Now back to the show. Remember to stay till the end where I give you a sneak peek of next week's episode. Why is it that these soft skills and this cognitive labor becomes invisible even to ourselves, whether you're a man or a woman? It's like you don't value it unless you actually built a house or something. Right. So can I ask a quick follow-up question? The person that you are talking about does she work or she stays? Is she a stay at home? Um, does she participate in the economy? She does. Okay. Yeah. So I, all of the people I interviewed in my book, all both work full time. And so when we, we talk about equal partnership, the assumption is we both work 40 hours outside of the house. We're getting paid. We contribute to family income. Let's talk about how we're going to spend the rest of those hours when we're together in the home. Once one person works part-time or has a flexible schedule or stays home, that's going to shift. And then you have to read, you have to decide as a couple, what does equal or what, then then it switches to equity. What does equity look like for us and our household? So both of us feel like we're contributing to the family in a financial and or emotional way. And both of us feel like we still have our own autonomy to some place. But going back to your friend that you told us about, I think that it is very normal for us to devalue cognitive labor and household work and child rearing work and elder care work because historically we have always devalued women's work over men's work. I think that culturally we have a very high regard for law and medicine and business and academia that were all traditionally men's jobs and were quick to dismiss how difficult child rearing and housework and caregiving was because I think we live in a patriarchal society. I think in the future we will see something much closer to equity where humans can choose their career and they can choose their personal life based on their own what they want to do as opposed to what people think they should do because of their gender identity. So does Equality in the home mean 50-50, or does it just mean that it's 100% and everyone's happy? It depends. So it really comes down to every couple. And I'm the lat, like, no one should follow their spouse around with an Excel spreadsheet and a checklist <laughs> and a pen. Like, there is no quicker way to an argument. Yeah, I've been married for 17 years, right? I get it. Marriage is hard, and it ebbs and flows. There are months when... You have a big work project. Someone is sick in your family. You're sick, right? Like you have to step back and your partner has to step up. I'm not talking about 50-50 on a daily basis or even weekly, but from 10,000 feet, when you look at your relationship, are you both contributing equally? Does anyone feel resentful of the other person because the other person isn't doing enough? Are you both equally exhausted when you go to bed at night <laughs> because you are sharing the same amount of cognitive labor? I think that shifts depending on who is employed outside the home and who isn't. I think it shifts based on ages of kids or what's going on in the household at any given time. So no, I don't think it necessarily comes down to 50-50, but I think it has to feel equitable between the two people over the course of a relationship. When it comes to queer couples, 
is gender equality an automatic since they're presumably the same gender? You might think so, but actually (laughs) data shows us that no, same-sex and queer couples are on average more equal than different sex couples, but we don't see as many examples of 50-50 as we might expect. There was a woman, I can get her name for your pod notes, I can't think of it off the top of my head. She did her dissertation and found that the most equitable relationships are two females when they take turns biologically having a baby because they both go through pregnancy. They both have to back off from work. They both go through delivery, right? And if they each have the same number of children over the course of their marriage, that that was what led to the most equality. However, I think that because of the structural challenges that we talked about before, you still see same-sex and queer couples falling into a parent-child or employer-employee. I interviewed Christopher Carrington, when I was writing the book, and he's researched same-sex couples in Northern California and household patterns. And he actually said the Marriage Equality Act in California actually made for less equality in the home. He said that before marriage equality, both partners had to own property. They had to have jobs. They had to have their own insurance because you didn't have the entitlements of your partner the way that different sex couples did, right? You couldn't have your partner's insurance because there was no marriage equality. After marriage equality, you could have one person specialize in domestic and one person specialize in income generation because you had each other's entitlements. You could co-parent before, right? You, you couldn't co-parent. So he said, ironically, giving more rights to same-sex couples has led to more inequality in the household. And I think that speaks to how strong these structural patterns are that force two people of a relationship to fit into the way that our society operates as opposed to what they might want to do in their household. That's so interesting. As we've stirred up these thoughts with everyone, I want to be sure that what we're talking about here is actionable. And of course, I do recommend everyone buy your book because it is very actionable. It's very thought-provoking. It would make great journal entries. You could come together, talk about it. But I want to leave people on the audio end with a couple of of actionable thoughts. So the first one is something you warn against in your book was assigning chores based on skill sets. Why is that a bad idea? So traditionally, male-coded chores are intermittent. They happen once in a while. They happen on the weekends, and they tend to be outdoor, mowing lawns, trimming hedges, painting things, fix-it projects washing the car. Women-coded chores tend to be inside and they're routine, things that have to happen every single day, cooking, cleaning, clothes washing, child rearing. If you designate chores based on what's coded for men and women, you perpetuate that one-third, two-third split that we seem stuck in right now because there are only about one-third of those male-coded chores and about two-thirds of the female-coded chores. The other thing is male-coded chores, because they're intermittent, you can get away with not doing it for several days or even a couple weeks. But you skip one day of doing the dishes or feeding the kids, and there's going to be (laughs) tyranny in your house, right? So the best way to, I think, equalize chores is make sure that you have an equal divide in those male-coded chores and an equal divide in those female-coded chores. I like that. When people want to have a discussion with their partner about this sort of thing, maybe they're in that parental role or in some way or another, the dynamic of that parental vibe has entered the relationship. 
Can you share an example of how to word an invitation to your partner to discuss gender roles? Because as we all know, it is more heavily incentivized for the person on the less beneficial end to have the discussion, but it can be quite upsetting for the person who is the primary beneficiary of the inequality to want to make any change. I mean, ideally, it's the person who's not the cognitive labor who starts this conversation, but that doesn't always happen, as you just mentioned. I think the best way to start it is to take it away from you and me and bring it up to sort of a social pattern. Hey, I read this book. I listened to this podcast. It sounds like the average couple out there both work, but the the cognitive labor all falls on one person over the other. And that, you know, sort of in North America, we're stuck in this one third, two thirds split. That's what like the data says. And I realized we're kind of there too. And this podcast slash book also said that this can actually be have negative consequences for both of us, right? Like it can limit maybe career opportunities for one person, and it can also limit emotional relationships or family opportunities for the other person. So can we talk about that? You might not say it just like that. Those are obviously my words, but taking it away from like you and me, you don't want to blame anyone. You're doing this and that's why our relationship is messed up. That's not what you want to say. You want to kind of take it a little bit higher and say, this is the social pattern. This is what's happening. We're falling into it. How can we bring ourselves out of that? Because there are negative consequences for both of us if we continue doing this. It's actually a conversation that I had with my husband many years ago, which is what inspired me to write this book in the first place. I had a meltdown on my filthy kitchen floor very late at night during the week. And I said to him, I think my kids were like two and five. And I said, I feel myself pulling away from work and I see you pulling away from the kids and we are falling into the same patterns that everyone else is falling into. And I think we're both going to regret it in 20 years and we need to make a change now. Oh, I love the um, way you it, word that. That's so good. That's so like so, team us and and not instead yeah. of like, hey, you, I got something to add to your list, you know? It was very, I think, yeah, team us is sort of, it, and it hurts. If you're the one doing more, that might feel forced and you might feel a little disingenuine because you're probably a little resentful. And I get that. But sometimes if it gets to a better outcome, right, then maybe that is the tact that you take. Because as soon as you start blaming your partner, the wall goes up and the conversation stops. So any way that you can keep talking, I think, is probably the best tact to take. I love it. Okay, last question. What are the options for a person who feels as though they are the one who's overburdened and their partner is unwilling or uninterested and even talking about gender norms, what are their options? They have fewer options. And I empathize with the person in this space. And there are a lot of people out there who are here. So if you're listening and this feels like, oh, gosh, that's me. I've tried, tried your way. I've tried other ways. I've tried everything. My partner is not interested and I feel stuck. I actually wrote an article about this because I had so many people ask me the same question, which I'm happy to share with you to link in as well. But Basically, Jessa DeGroot from the Third Path Institute helped me answer this question. And she said, listen, if A plus B is C and C is your marriage and you're A and your partner's B, even if your partner doesn't change, if B stays the same, 
if you change A, if you A squared plus B, you're changing your marriage, right? If you set boundaries, if you change your routine, if you stop doing things or start doing things or use different language or parent differently, even if your partner refuses to change, if you change, your marriage will change. It might be a negative change. It might be a positive change. But if you're at the point where you're willing, if you're unhappy enough that you want to take that risk to mix things up, changing yourself will have an impact on, on your relationship. And I think that's when you start talking about setting boundaries. I'm going to cook dinner four nights a week. You can fend for yourself the other three. <laughs> I'm going to stop doing your laundry. I love you, but I need to set some boundaries for my own emotional health, right? So that's when you can start thinking about decisions you can make for yourself that will get you to a healthier place. I love it. Thank you so much. Tell people where they can stay in touch with your work, how they can engage with you as a company, because you've got some interesting offers there. Thank you very much. You can um, go to my website, katemangino.com, where I always have upcoming activities. And I do love to do speaking events. If your company has a, you know, like a, what's the DEIA, sorry, it yes. wasn't coming out, or or um, an employee working group, um, I do a lot of uh, workshops with companies to start thinking through gender norms and how it is affecting household and professional spaces. Um, you can also find me on Twitter slash X, what I'm calling it now, as well as LinkedIn. Um, happy to engage with readers, always excited to get feedback. So um, yeah, please check those out. Thank you. This was awesome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, you'll also like the one I did Asking the question, could your attachment style be ruining your relationship? It's episode 180. And you know, they say that word of mouth is still the best way for a podcast to grow. So since you made it this far, now's a great time to take a screenshot and share about it on social media. Stay tuned next week when I talk with globally acclaimed artist Jay Alders on how to finally make time to do the things that you love.